So, um, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Well, we'll take a look at two places. First in Deuteronomy chapter 10. I trust that you're all there. Amen. If you're not, say amen. I'll wait for you. Because I'd like you all to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. We'll read those uh, till verse 18. 14, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. That sounds like he pretty much owns everything, including you and me, uh, and every unbeliever on the planet. Verse 15, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. Verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Uh, and before we move over, well, you could, uh, before we move over to chapter 30, which is nearby, um, we, we, we notice now, here, here's this commandment, and we'll start getting an inkling and an understanding of what circumcision was all about. Now, circumcision was a historical fact given to Abraham, uh, passed down to Isaac, and passed down to Jacob and to the children of Israel, circumcised the eighth day and so forth. But here we, under, we get an idea of what, why circumcision as a physical act was ordained because it is a spiritual truth. But now the Lord throws a curveball here at us. The same way he did to Nicodemus at night. He says, circumcise now, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. And you just, now you look at that and say, well, what am I supposed to do? Cut my chest open and kind of, and then, and, and clip the, uh, you know, probably the aorta or something because, you know, the, the, the foreskin of the aorta or the vena cava. What, what do I, you know, where, where am I going with that? I mean, that, that would be the obvious thing. Nicodemus thought that because Lord, the Lord said to him in John chapter 3, he says, you must be born from above. We call it born again. But literally, it was born from above. Uh, unless you're born of, the, of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus' mind is blown. He's a, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a, he is a teacher in Israel. And he says... Must the man go into his mother's womb a second time? See, that's where the thinking goes. Obviously, he probably pondered, I think that he pondered this passage. How do you circumcise your heart? That's where we turn to chapter 30. Obviously, it's not a physical act of circumcising the heart. It must be a spiritual truth. Because as soon as we cut the chest open and start manipulating the heart, other than, you know, open heart massage, or what we call closed heart massage before you open up the heart, um, light up my life Larry <laughs> is a practice for that. That's what we know as CPR. In chapter 30, what are we? Verse 5 through 8. In verses 5 through 8, before the children of Israel go into the promised land, verse 5 says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your, father, your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will, sir, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. And the Lord your God will, in verse 7, and the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you, verse 8, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. So we really un we understand now why circumcision was ordained to God, because it reflects, as in the cutting of the flesh, it is supposed to represent uh, the act of God to regenerate the soul. 
And so this verse, these two, or these two passages, as far as for circumcising the heart, can only be interpreted allegorically. They can only be interpreted spiritually. Or do you follow me on this? There are passages, scriptures that should be taken literally. There are passages of scripture that should be taken taken completely and strictly allegorically. And then there are passages of scripture that combine them both. And in fact, even sandwich them. A physical act, a spiritual act, and even a physical act. There are passages of scripture all through the Bible that are like that. The So we take... When somebody asks me, do you interpret the scriptures spiritually or do you interpret the scriptures literally? And you know what my answer always is? Yes. <laughs> I interpret it according to the context of the, the initial context. However, so that I don't get confused like Nicodemus in that first episode of Nick at Night, I, I look at the... Th- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in that first episode in John chapter 3 of Nick at Night, so that I don't get confused like Nicodemus, I want to, for me personally, it works like this. I interpret the passage of Scripture according to the gospel first. How does it, does it relate to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? If I can't find it there, then I'll go to the context, and then I'll broaden it out. Typically, but not always, I can go to the context of the gospel and see something. But sometimes they're hidden. Sometimes I'm not mature enough at this particular point in my life. And so it takes a few years for me to get there um, and, and understand it. Uh, and then I just use it, take it by context. Go ahead, Brother Mike. Do I think Nicodemus was actually reading the Bible? I'm sorry about that. I might have another question. Um, at, uh, the question Brother Mike had, because I, did, I handed him the mic, but I didn't turn on the mic, was do you think Nicodemus was actually reading the Bible? Uh, I do, uh, because the Lord Jesus himself said that of him. He says, Are you, are, aren't you a ruler in Israel? Uh, in other words, aren't you a teacher in Israel? You teach you teach these things, so he has to be teaching from somewhere. And so I, I imply, I see that the Lord is the, the implication is is that he's teaching scripture, but he's not teaching certainly every spiritual truth of this Messiah. So, Go ahead. you know, Jesus's question: You know, art thou master of Israel? Master of Israel. Yeah. Now, no, it's not these things. I mean, I was under the impression that the Lord thought he should know this. Right. Uh, but as you can see here, uh, he it, it may be even a prompting. The going back to the Garden of Eden, uh, to to use that as an illustration, Genesis John, brother brother uh, Buzz, go back to the Garden of Eden when when after Adam sinned and God calls out, "Where art thou? Where are you?" It's not that God didn't know; He was initiating a response for Adam uh, for Adam. He may not have known all the implications. Likewise with Nicodemus, when he says, aren't thou a master or teacher in Israel? Aren't you a teacher in Israel? Shouldn't you know these things? Is the implication of that. Um, what he's doing is he's eliciting the same kind of thing. He's not demanding that he knows because the scripture in the Psalm says, uh, he knows our frame that we're dust. We, you know, we're made lower than the angels, so... So is he suggesting that his study was not deep enough or that, you know, he just didn't have the Holy Spirit and couldn't? I'm glad that you asked that. Let me answer that. Because every truth of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 verse 20 is revelation truth. It's revelation truth. It must be revealed to the heart because we were, before we were saved, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now that we're saved and we're regenerated, having a circumcised heart, now the, these things are revealed to us. We are children of, we are infants, we're babes in Christ, and then we grow just as the physical life shows us an example of growth. Does Grant, Brant, who, Grant, Brant, who has just been given new birth a year ago, 
um, know everything there is to know about the Bible. Certainly not. But he is growing in grace. And as he does, uh, as he does, he'll learn some things. Or physically, if we look at the temporal world, here is Stefan, and as an infant, he only knows... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, feed me, change me, and I want to play. And and no, uh, he knows he knows no. Why does he know no? Because he does things that no requ- requires <laughs> as an illicit response. He does things that demands no because he came forth from the womb speaking lies, and he was conceived in iniquity. So he is learning as he grows. God ordained it such so that it is a reflection of spiritual truth. Likewise with the circumcision of the heart. Uh, That must be revealed. I believe that typically for Israel, well that was a passage of scripture that wasn't taught very often, if at all, because it couldn't be revealed until the Lord Jesus Christ came and we see the cutting of his flesh as being an understanding identifier for what circumcision was all about, the cutting away of the flesh. Now we recognize that as we die to flesh, that is, and because of the regeneration that is spiritual, we're regenerated in the heart. Then now we can uh, now now we can understand what it means to die to the flesh. That I deny self, take up my cross, and follow Jesus as those things are revealed to us. The reason why I started with that is when we were looking at the, uh, when we were looking at the postmodern period and we came to fundamentalism, in in fact, neo-fundamentalism, that that they were, the separatists of the neo-fundamentalists were separating even upon the doctrine of eschatology, that by the what you believe concerning something that has not yet happened, uh, that we they the neo fundamentalists say, well, we can't have fellowship unless you believe it the way I believe it, and that is just the acme of stupidity. <laughs> I. And I mean, I hopefully I mean this with all respect to a brother in Christ who may have a particular belief. And the reason why I brought up the allegorical is, as last week we looked at one of the one of the four basic eschatologies, one of the four basic end times views is dispensation premillennialism. It's where you have the, you know, the Jerry Jenkins, uh, uh, Tim LaHaye left behind kind of thing. Churches raptured, seven years of tribulation, um, and Israel is restored because the church and Israel are two separate entities. However, one of the, the, the one of the largest emphases in most, and I say most because I don't know if every single pre- dispensational pre-millennial view taker view taker. <laughs> sees it like this, but generally they say you got to interpret the book of Revelation literally. And then, as I mentioned last week, time and time and time and time again, they interpret things allegorically, spiritually. They, it, it, it just, because you, sometimes you have to. There are things that are just spiritual. For example, Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30. These are spiritually discerned. But as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, all truth of Christ is spiritually discerned. A natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, neither can he understand them. They're foolishness to him, for they are spiritually discerned. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. This is why an unsaved person can kind of make sense of the Scriptures, but he can't understand them, and he can't apply them, because he's not empowered to do so. This is why Adam, though he knew when he fell... The difference between good and evil, but since he died spiritually, the breath of life that was breathed into his nostrils in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, that departed from him as soon as he disobeyed the, uh, the Lord his God. And now, knowing the difference between good and evil, he was not empowered to choose the good 
over the evil because he was in a different camp. And so likewise are we. When we look at the things that haven't happened yet, uh, as I mentioned, there are difficulties in every single one of them. Sometimes we, basically what I did for, some, for a number of years concerning the end times, as far as a view, I picked the dog with the least amount of fleas. That's why I was all millennial. The all millennial view was the simplest, and it was the dog with the least amount of fleas. It had the least amount of difficulties. Brother Mike. Since we're on the subject... You know, the, the Lord, when he went away into heaven, right. they, the disciples asked him a question. They asked him, is it Acts the kingdom, one verse the kingdom is going to come now to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times nor the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. You know, he's standing in front of his own disciples, giving them a personal charge. And then people have taken this, particular saying and they said see it's not for anyone to know the times or the seasons mm-hmm. you know and that but then at the same time when the lord was on the earth uh he says you know why can't you discern the signs of the times mm-hmm. so in other words you know there was something that the jews should have known when he came and there's things that we should know absolutely I agree with that. I'm glad you asked that question because here's one of the things that I want to point out with this. Um, You'll encounter folks uh, with a uh, modicum of ignorance, if I could say it this way, uh, when it comes to the end times views. For example, I was even challenged in this church by somebody, I'm not going to say the name, but some of you were here for a Sunday evening. We weren't even in the text of anything that was end times. And 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 within a couple sentences back and forth with a question, which I do encourage, uh, he said, don't you believe in a rapture? He just displayed his ignorance because all four views that I showed you last week, the post-millennial view, the, uh, the amillennial view, the dispensational premillennial view, and the historical premillennial view, which is also called the post-tribulational view, Every one of them believes the rapture. And in fact, the scriptures speak of a harpazo, a, uh, a catching away. It you, doesn't use the word rapture, which is a Latin word. It uses a Greek word, but it means a catching away. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up, will be raptured, will be harpazo um, with them. And so it's in the scriptures. And so if, if you ever are confronted like this, because very hardcore um, fundamentalists, neo-fundamentalists, who are pre, um, pre-dispensational premillennial, they are ignorant of the others because they have so many of these charts and so forth that say, well, this is how everything is supposed to line up. They're blind to all the difficulties within the view that they're presenting, um, they ignore the scriptures that that directly oppose their their particular view, and so they think that the other views don't believe in a rapture. The rapture is the exception to the rule, uh, because those who are dead in Christ, which I would present that those who are Old Testament saints who are dead in Christ, who are looking forward to the Christ to come, and then for the last 2,000 years, all those that died in Christ, that's the majority for those who are alive and remain before the Lord Jesus comes. Every one of those views, except for that kind of fifth ter- view that we mentioned, and I should go over them before we field any more questions, just to remind you of them, and, and you can ask some more questions, The uh, is this full preterist view, that all of it has been fulfilled including the rapture of the church, that the second coming of the Lord has been already fulfilled, but Scripture directly opposes that. And since we've been covering this last period of time, the postmodern period, this postmodern period there are uh, people such as the emergent church that are rising up and saying, well, yeah, it's all spiritualized because the Lord has already come. Every eye had already seen him spiritually speaking. And I don't know how, there's many ways 
I, I, you know, I don't know the thinking of their minds, but I know that some of the explanations that have been thrown out concerning that, well, uh, uh, every eye has seen him because since it's spiritually, it's allegorized spiritually, since all the world dates their calendars by the coming of the Lord, see, that's how everybody has seen his second coming. You gotta, you gotta be pretty spiritually limber to go through that kind of gymnastics to make that work. I think. Anyway, postmillennial, and and I wish that I'd provided this for you last week so that you could have looked at it. It's defined as a view of a thousand years from Revelation twenty verses four through six, which we read last week, being a non-literal long era of time described as the golden age of Christianity that Christ's return will come personally and visibly after the church has ushered in a world of righteousness with Christ enthroned in heaven, uh, reigning in his people on earth. And the Savoy Declaration of 1658, whom John Owen was the, uh, as a Congregationalist minister, John Owen, the Scottish, um, the, the Scottish mind that mostly put this together, um, this, uh, it, it is one of the earliest creedal statements of postmillennial eschatology, and I'll just not read that right now. Um, the adherents, John Owen, as I mentioned, Jonathan Edwards, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, Lorraine Bettner, and Rusus John Rushdooney. Those were many adherents to the post, uh, postmillennial. And that is gaining ground today. See, Many of them preach the same thing that I would preach, the same thing that any good Bible student would preach, that once we're saved, um, Christianity is not just salvation that affects myself, it affects the world around me. And it should, it should reach out. The truth of the Spirit in you and the truth of the Spirit in me should reach out and uh, touch every area of our lives. In what we do, when we go shopping, when we meet with other people, when we're talking to unbelievers, when we're talking to believers, um, even our, say, voting in this country politically, or if you were in England serving under a parliament and, and a monarchy, uh, your worldview should be that of Christ and him crucified, Christ reigning upon the throne, and it should affect the areas of your life. Postmillennialism, on the other hand, um, seems to drive many of the theologies of those who believe that, you know, and it's very optimistic. Who, who doesn't want the gospel to bring in a golden age? But it is uh, a theo eschatology and theology where it affects the theology that says not only does it affect every area of your life uh, of our lives, but it must affect every area of our lives in order to bring about this golden age. In other words, go, like our government should be surrendered unto Christ. Every government of the world should be surrendered unto Christ. And it should be, and we should kind of work towards, towards that. But the scriptures oppose it. It, uh, uh, it opposes this as we're told more times than the golden age of the millennial period that we're a suffering church. It and then how do you pray for that? One of the biggest difficulties is if I'm praying for Christ's kingdom to be here upon earth now, then I'm not praying for his second coming. Revelation 22, verse, um, verse 20. I get, oh, it ends in verse 21. I said Revelation 20 to verse 21, where it says, where Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. And the prayer for that from John right after, immediately following, you know, all know that. Come, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you're praying for the church to rise up, for the Lord Jesus to reign upon earth, how could you be praying for the Lord Jesus to come? Because the, one of the primary things that we see in praying for the Lord Jesus to come is that we live in an evil world, and the only reason that the world will become better is because the Lord Jesus returns. He said so before he even went to the cross. When the when he was anointed before his burial and his disciples, not just Judas, but all of his disciples said, "Look at this waste. This is three hundred pence. This is this is nearly a year's wages. 
that was spent lavishly on the Lord. Why this waste? He says, the poor you'll have with you always. And so I believe in giving to the poor. I believe making the world a better place. When I go into the bathroom, I clean up the counter. after, Even though it's wet all over the place, I'll take the paper towels and I'll clean it up if there are paper towels there. So I leave it a better place than I've than it was when I came in. But it's the acme of foolishness to think that we are going to eradicate poverty and ignorance, uh, you know, because people aren't educated or because that's not going to happen until because the Lord Himself said it's not going to happen. The poor you'll have with you always because it's an opportunity for us to minister the gospel. So that's post post millennialism has many, many difficulties in it. Um, Amillennialism is a form of kilogorism. It takes the word kilia, which means means thousand, and it takes allegoria, the Greek word allegoria, which means allegory, and it combines the two. And it means to hold an allegorical belief of Christ's reign upon earth prior to Christ's return, prior to his uh, physical, that's a type, prior to Christ's physical and visible return to earth for the final judgment. The first four of these all believe that the Lord will come visibly and physically. Postmillennialism doesn't necessarily believe in his imminence, that he can come at any time, because the church age has to be ushered in. So that's why I'm not a postmillennialist. Um, the the Puritan adherents presented Christ's kingdom as an already not yet reality. Christ reigns upon the throne in heaven. However, um, he reigns upon the throne of our hearts now. And then when Jesus returns, he he raises the dead in Christ, raptures the church, and then eternity begins. Um, That's how most Reformed adherents are. Um, the Reformed Church, like the Dutch Reform, the Swiss Reform, uh, the, uh, uh, who's the others? Uh, the, the most, most Calvinists, basically. Reformed Baptist churches, Lutheran churches, um, even the Methodist churches, Wesleyan Methodist churches, uh, are amillennial. Um, so, uh, but they have some difficulties too because of Isaiah, as I mentioned last week, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 10, and 65, verses 17 through 25. Um, the portions of Scripture uh, in those passages that speak of, you know, a child playing near a, a viper's den or an adder's den, and the lion laying down with the lamb and the, and the uh, lion eating straw as an ox. If it's interpreted um, literally, uh, the then uh, you got some issues. But if it's all interpreted spiritually, there's some issues as well because there doesn't seem to be a fit for the spiritual in those passages that relate to how we are right now as far as the lion laying down with the lamb and the lion eating straw like an ox. Well, which lion are you talking about? Are you talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah that's reigning in our hearts, or are you talking about uh, Satan as a roaring lion and Peter, First Peter, what is it, First Peter chapter 5, Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Brother Mike, here's the mic. So uh, we do think that the kingdom is within us. Yes, I do. Yeah, just not, I don't know what the Puritans, I would assume they were thinking the same thing. Yes, uh, already not yet, that it's already, but then there is a literal reign of Christ when he returns. Uh, But they didn't believe that it would reign on earth because he's already reigning on earth through us is what their thinking was. Is, is it viable? Sure. And in fact, it was the one with the least amount of difficulties. Which, and and, and you, when you run across, say, some Presbyterians and some Reformed Baptists, that when you ask them about Isaiah 11, it never crossed their mind to even think that it was contradictory. And when they look at it, they go, oh, that is a difficulty. But they, they don't study it that way. It's just kind of been eliminated from... Uh, from their stuff. And, and, and anyway, even though I hadn't gone to seminary, I've audited some classes and I studied going to seminary. Um, 
and you know, and I'd even applied to seminary and was accepted to some seminaries. But um, some, the sad thing about seminary study, or even some of the Bible colleges, you're so busy studying the the uh, curriculum that you're given that you don't have time to read the Bible. And I've found many seminary graduates that, uh, <laughs> with master's degrees in divinity, pastoring churches that never read through the Bible a single time. PhDs. I guess I was thinking even. that that verse in Isaiah, the, the wolf and the, all the different animals laying together, that that was in the physical when Christ returns. Yes. And, and kind of going back to heaven, or, or to, not heaven, Eden, like where the, everybody was living in peace with each other we weren't eating animals and you know and that difficulty is solved by the next two views um that difficulty ends up being solved by the next two views but the next two views have their own difficulties thank you yes uh um as far as for the lord's actual reign upon earth and the next one is the dispensational premillennial view generally believes that israel and the church are distinct entities with different destinies, it also widely holds on uh, to an appearance of Christ before a seven-year wor- uh, worldwide tribulation, so that's the rapture of the church. Whereas the church is raptured, which is the Greek harpazo, prior to uh, this tribulation in order to facilitate a continued fulfillment of Old Testament promises to Israel by salvation through the Messiah. Uh, this worldwide tribulation will be followed by the physical return of Christ with his saints which will, in turn, mark the beginning of a literal 1,000-year reign upon the earth. Typically, with fellows that I've encountered that believe in the pre-dispensational, uh, premillennial view, the only thing that they do take literally is the 1,000 years of Revelation chapter 20. And as I mentioned last week, that is the that is the weirdest difficult that is the weirdest thing to take literally because as I mentioned to you in the Greek language typically even in Koine Greek the common Greek that the the New Testament is written in when you have a number like a hundred or a thousand you have a number in front of it to designate what that number is is it one hundred or two hundred or three hundred same as a thousand. Is it 100 or, or 1,000, 2,000, 3,000? And the 1,000 years it's in Revelation 20 is just 1,000. It has no marker, identifier as what, how many thousand it is. And this is why many proponents of the millennial and, and historical pre-millennial views take it as being allegorical because it's not identified. Likewise, they take literally the 144,000 Jewish evangelists in Revelation 7. However, when you look at it in Greek, it doesn't say 144,000. It says 144,000s, plural. 12,000s of the tribe of Judah. 12,000s, plural, of the tribe of Reuben. And they they say, well, we've got to take that literally. However, Many of the major proponents of the premillennial dispensation view, um, dispensational premillennial view, are King James only fundamentalists. <laughs> Not all of them are, because because it's and and the reason why I want to cover this and why I mentioned the allegorical in Deuteronomy is because this is the most widely held uh, view for eschatology in America today. The others are, um, amillennialism I think runs uh, close second, and uh, uh, historical pre-mill runs third. The, the, uh, a lot of the difficulties, I mentioned the inconsistent literalism, um, 144,000, uh, and the rapture is an appearance of Christ uh, there, but then they, have, they don't ever mention what goes on at the end of the thousand-year reign on the earth. Um, it may come and turn out that way, I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. And I won't disfellowship, as I mentioned, John, John MacArthur, John Fullerton MacArthur, and uh, Phil Johnson of Grace Community Church, they hold to that view. 
Um, started with John Nelson Darby, popularized by C.I. Uh, C. Schofield and the Schofield Reference Bible, and uh, J. Dwight Pentecost, John Dwight Pentecost, uh, with his book Things to Come, really nailed down a lot of things. And he answered a lot of questions. Unfortunately, in his answering many of the questions in his, books, thing, in his book Things to Come, if you know anything about the other views, you notice that he created more he'll he'll have created more questions than he than he answered and finally the historical premill view is also called the post tribulational view it takes it actually takes a more chronological approach to the book of revelation in that as a tribulation seems to be that which is described from revelation chapter six to Revelation chapter nineteen, we see the coming of the Lord in Revelation chapter nineteen, and then in Revelation chapter twenty, that would be the millennial reign of Christ. And they and most adherents like Charles Spurgeon, John Gill, um, who are the others that I mentioned there? Oh, going back to Papias and Justin Martyr, John Bunyan, they take the thousand years because even those that weren't like, you know, Charles Spurgeon didn't go to Bible college, but he learned Greek when he was when he was 15 years old. Uh, you know, in his formative years, in 13 through 16, he was learning Greek and Hebrew, and he recognized, as many of the historical pre-mills do, in the Greek that it, the thousand isn't defined. So they take it as an allegorical period of time. Part of it uh, is the Lord reigning. They, they take the amillennial stance as far as the Lord reigning as being now, and then when the Lord returns, he uh, we go through this great tribulation. The Antichrist is revealed. We go through this tribulation, and then they uh, then the dead in Christ are raised, and the church is raptured, but they have the same problem concerning the resurrection of the dead. What happens at the end of the end of the thousand years or Christ's reign upon the earth, what what do they do with that? And the people that are populating the earth and so forth, if they go through the tribulation, if people are saved through the tribulation, and then those saved are are, are either killed or alive and the they're raised from the dead and the dead and the alive in Christ are caught up in the air, what do you populate the earth with? Um, I'm actually having leanings toward this a little bit more and more. Uh, if I see it through the truth of the, if I see it through the lens of the gospel, remember that when the Lord Jesus came and effected a worldwide transformation in the truth of His death upon the cross. However, it was only seen by a few. It was in a little place um, uh, in a nation that's no bigger than the size of New Jersey, right there on the you know on the east coast of the Mediterranean, and it happened there. Now every eye will see him. We could see that that could be a possibility with the you know with the news and the internet that we have. However, as far as the cataclysm. This is one of the questions that I I was asked a couple times this last week. Well, how do you see some of these things working out? The things I can see working out is maybe it's the historical pre-mill view um, and that the cataclysm takes place in Jerusalem while the return of Christ is every eye will see him. But since, though it'll affect the entire world, as we can see, COVID affected the entire world. However, it affected some places more than others. When we see the cataclysm of the return of the Lord, we might see it in Jerusalem, most especially. We'll see the return of, you know, the church will be raptured at the end of this whole tribulation, but the tribulation won't be as effectual worldwide. It will be more concentrated in the Middle East, though it will affect, there are elements of it that will affect the whole world. Not everyone will be evangelized. And so in that place where the Lord returns, and maybe he'll change the physiology and the physics of things so that people will live a little bit longer. Uh, that the that the sinners that uh, that weren't saved during that time were will be populating the earth, but they'll be ruled by Jesus reigning upon the throne. That's the only possibility I could come up with on this. Oh, brother Mike, here's the mic. 
So I'm not understanding their problems with the thousands. Uh, and uh, well, I, I don't see the point or the problem, but, you know, if the Lord wanted 144 million witnesses, that's his business, I think. Sure. Well, we, so. though we're, we're not Calvinists, we do take a, most of us here, take a stance on our salvation is in God's hand. It's by his sovereign grace that we're saved. He must draw us to himself. And for Jewish evangelists and the dispensational thing, I don't have a problem with that. Um, the people that would have a problem with them or those uh, with that is those that are a little bit more Arminian. The typical way for people to be evangelized is by redeemed sinners saved by God's grace to present the gospel. Not angels are not an automatic thing, typically that we see from the New Testament. The only exception is a saved wife to an unsaved or backslidden husband in First Peter chapter three. That's the only exception because we're, you know, remember Cornelius, he's giving alms, he's praying, an angel appears to him, go call Peter. Saul of Tarsus, he sees the Lord Jesus himself in Acts chapter nine. He's blinded on the road. Even the guys heard in more than likely in the Hebrew as we went through our church history thing when we were in Acts, we saw both of these instances. The typical way is for um, a redeemed sinner to bring forth the gospel. So Paul is in the street called straight in the house and and he's uh, crying out to God for three days and and uh, Ananias is told to go. Even though he'd seen the Lord, his salvation didn't come until a sinner saved by grace had appeared unto him. Um, as far as for the New Testament, and the only exception we have in the New Testament is First Peter chapter 3 with an unbelieving wife. And the reason why is because it, in itself, the marriage, the marriage uh, uh, model in and of itself presents the blessed truth of the gospel of Christ to his beloved bride. And so even by her silence, because we as the church don't tell Jesus what to do. He's the head of his church, we're the body. The body follows what the head says. And he's the bridegroom to the bride. The bride is a submissive bride whom he has washed and cleansed with his precious blood, whom he has died for and laid down his life for. He tells us what to do. So we become a submissive bride unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And that model is enough that by, that by God's grace that that husband may be saved. Will he be saved? No, well, that's in God's hands. However, that if a wife who is a believer to an unbelieving husband, man, that's a very powerful, effective truth that it may start bringing them to church. We even have an example of that right here in this church, that a believing spouse a believing wife praying for her husband for, what was it, over a year, a year and a half, going to the ladies' Bible study, coming to church, glowing. She passed away with her desire that her husband would come to church. And from what I hear, since he's been coming to church, he's been away uh, for the funeral things that were going up, but he's back. Um, but he's back now. From what I even understand, that he may have even made a confession of faith in his heart because he's considering even being baptized. So I need to sit down with him with concern in that. Uh, Because of the model that existed of the truth of the gospel, it's that powerful. But that's the only exception I know as far as silence because we know Romans chapter 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear except God send a preacher. How beautiful are the feet of them who bring glad tidings of good things. That's the typical model as far as the New Testament. Old Testament was different. God spoke to prophets. Prophets spoke to the people. But we have a, the Holy Spirit, which is a convicting of, of uh, sin, righteousness, and judgment, greater power in that truth. Any other questions? Sister, go ahead. Okay, well, the Giggle away. Um, but don't get into the laughing revival, which we'll talk about in another lesson. Any other questions? <laughs> I'm just teasing, sister. Sister, whatever gift that your family gives us, we, we, we embrace it with all love and, and, and in the spirit of offering that it is given. <laughs> uh, anything else? 
Uh, Brother Nicholas. No, don't feel. Uh, you're, you're, you get smarter with the microphone. I don't know what allegorically means. Allegorically. Uh, allegor- uh, an allegory is a story. Thank you. Very good. See, there's no such thing as a dumb question because somebody else might have that question as well. Uh, what an allegory means is, uh, and thank you for that, it just means a story, a st- and specifically a story that relates to something else. Uh, biblically, an allegory would be something that if it's in the physical, it's, then it has a spiritual meaning. And we see this in the Old Testament all the time because everything in the Bible is spiritual. Everything is. A sower went forth to sow. A parable that we see in the New Testament, those are, uh, those are allegories uh, with, the, with the spiritual meaning. But when we think about it, though, the, like we're in the Old Testament, we've been in Chronicles and so forth, when we see the battles that are going on, those are all spiritual as well because the people of Israel could not win unless the Lord God was with them. So the act of what they were doing uh, historically, would actually happened, but it was recorded in such a way so that it could minister eternally to us. Did that help you? And you, brother? <laughs> I saw that thumbs up going. Glad you asked that question. Sister B. Can I make a comment? Well, your sister will miss it. And um, <laughs> you want your. Okay. Um, I just think that uh, the, the Bible is timeless and it applies to all ages. That's the same as eternal, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> and so God in his wisdom had to teach us in an allegorical or a, a, not always a literal way because culture has a lot to do with how we live. And what applies thousands, a couple thousand years ago applies now. However, we live totally different culturally, so he could not always be specific. He had to... Teach us yeah, he he couldn't always be specific because not because God couldn't make it specific for us. It's because we're not smart enough to figure things out. So he had to make it uh, make a timeless explanation, even from thousands uh, thousands of years ago. Also, um, we wrestle in our flesh with this truth that we are to glorify God. And if we could figure it out by the capacities that we have, fallen as they are, then we wouldn't need Christ. But in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives us a a, a great truth concerning parables and allegories. He says, he taught them all with parables, and when the disciples were alone, he taught them the meaning of it. Because he says in Matthew, when, in chapter 12, when he talked about parables he, said, parables, he says, it was for you to know the things of the kingdom, not for them. So it's hidden from them. The things of the spiritual truths that are in these stories, these allegories, these pictures and types that we see from Genesis to Revelation, they are meant so that when we discover them, that God gets the glory because we wouldn't discover them unless, unless God revealed them. God must reveal them. That's why they're revelation truth. They're not revelation just because, well, the word of God is revealed. I re- read it and, well, that's what it must mean. Because we read it, as you know, you've, you read it every day. You read your four portions in the McShane reading plan. After all these years, you go, well, when was this put in here? And why did it, does it mean this now? This is amazing. Because I, 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 we read a psalm today. We read Psalm, we, uh, we read psalm 52, 53, 54. And I was looking at things in there and going, wow, look at this. It's been there the whole time. But I hadn't grown to the place where the Lord could say, let me reveal this to you because it'll apply to your life today like it never did last year or the year before. Okay, I've gone way beyond. Brother Rick. I've got two questions. First of all, I was on the list. Easy for you to say. Amillennialism, yeah. They took the return of Christ and the rapture and the tribulation and the millennium allegorically. Mm-hmm. And they, they believe that things just continue to go on as they are now forever. 
Oh, as uh, no, that's not classical amillennialism. If everyone didn't get that, that what we're going through now is when the Lord returns, it's going to go on like this forever. That is not classic amillennialism. They look for the, they look and hasten the coming of the Lord because. We don't want it to remain like this. The already is the spiritual aspect of it, but then the not the not yet when the Lord Jesus returns. That part of amillennialism, classic amillennialism. There might be some amillennialists that have interpreted it that way, but classic amillennialism looks for the return of the Lord, and when eternity happens, it's going to be beyond what we understand. They, they take literally 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that says that we, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he appears, uh, we, shall be like, uh, we, shall be, uh, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. We see the, uh, the, the, in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal must put on immortality and this corruptible must put on incorruption. Uh, eternity and the final judgment will, will eradicate the universe of those who have rejected Christ, and it will be nothing but Christ for everyone. Now, is there a term for for what I just described? And also, what does "ah" mean in amillennialism? Amillennialism. Um, "Ah" means no millennia, no no thousand, uh, which actually is kind of closer to what Revelation 20 is because it just says a thousand. So they don't mean that they they say, well, it's not a literal thousand years; it's allegorical for the time. It, it's kind of an unfortunate title. It doesn't mean that there's no millennium. It means that the millennium is allegorical. Uh, it's not a literal 1,000 years. It's an allegorical period of time. So for them, it's lasted 2,000 years if the Lord returns right now. That would be a, millennial, a classic amillennialism as, uh, as John Calvin saw it, as Augustine saw it. Yeah. So they they think that the millennium is is right now and, and has lasted for two thousand years. Yes, um, they take seriously the passages of scripture where John speaks of it, Paul speaks of it in both ways. He says the latter times that are, you know, he speaks of it as future, but Paul and John are consistent in that they say we are in the last days, we are in the last times. So we take that truth to mean well spiritually, we're we've been in the last times for two thousand years. And so all millennials will take that. So will historical pre-mills. They'll take you. They'll they'll consider that we've been in the last days for two thousand years. We're at the end of the last days, I hope. So good question. 